Last night I ordered U.S. military forces to Panama. Ay, caramba! Excellent. Y'all take a chill. You need to cool that shit out. But are you still master of your domain? I am king of the county. Oh, go ahead. Oh, I'll have what she's having. Historic moment, a moment that will live forever. You're seeing the destruction of the Berlin Wall. Let's do it. The fall of the Berlin Wall in 1989 was indeed a historical moment in world history. But, as you just heard, 1989 also had many memorable moments of pop culture greatness. Hey everyone, it's another episode of Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff. Ken and I are a couple of high school history teachers who discuss, debate, and deprecate each other's thoughts and ideas about U.S. history and popular culture. And in each episode, we aim to create a big-picture snapshot of one year in post-World War II America by using significant historical events to contextualize a handful of films, TV shows, and songs. The 1980s ended with a huge step towards the end of the Cold War. The Berlin Wall fell in 1989, and there was some awesome entertainment as well. We'll be discussing two films, Do the Right Thing, and When Harry Met Sally. For television debuts, we'll be discussing The Simpsons and Seinfeld. And for music, we're covering Public Enemy, Soul to Soul, Tom Petty, Madonna, and Millie Vanilli. Let's get to the most important events from 1989. The greatest street party in the history of the world took place over the course of a couple days in November of 1989. The Berlin Wall fell, and it is considered one of the biggest steps in bringing the Cold War to an end. Berlin had been a divided city ever since the end of World War II. East Berlin was controlled by the communist bloc of East Germany and the Soviet Union, and West Berlin was controlled by West Germany and a couple of allied nations, including the United States. In 1961, East Germany erected an almost 100-mile wall around the city, and the barrier stood as a Cold War symbol, dividing communism and democracy. But into the late 1980s, the Cold War began to thaw across Eastern Europe, and East Berlin announced citizens were now free to cross the country's borders. Cliff, I remember watching the news that night, and I simply couldn't believe it. For almost my entire life up to that point, 28 years, the Berlin Wall was the Iron Curtain. And when it fell, it seemed the world was spinning in a new direction. In December of 1989, the mighty United States military invaded and quickly conquered the not-so-mighty Central American country of Panama. It was an attempt to overthrow military dictator Manuel Noriega, who had been indicted in the U.S. on drug trafficking charges and was accused of suppressing democracy in Panama and endangering U.S. nationals. Noriega would eventually be captured, put on trial, and he was convicted on drug trafficking, racketeering, and money laundering charges, marking the first time in history that a U.S. jury convicted a foreign leader of criminal charges. The invasion cost the lives of 23 U.S. soldiers and three U.S. civilians. Two major technologies were launched in 1989. One was interstellar, 
The other fit into the palm of your hand. The Nintendo Game Boy was a handheld video game console that combined aspects of Nintendo's NES console with their earlier handheld electronic games marketed under the name Game & Watch. The American robotic space probe Galileo was launched in 1989 in order to study the planet Jupiter and its moons. Galileo arrived at Jupiter several years later in 1995 and became the first spacecraft to orbit an outer planet. The worst oil spill disaster in U.S. history occurred in March of 1989. The Exxon Valdez oil spill was a man-made disaster that occurred when the Exxon Valdez, an oil tanker owned by the Exxon Shipping Company, spilled 11 million gallons of crude oil into Alaska's Prince William Sound. The oil slick covered 1,300 miles of coastline and killed millions of seabirds, otters, seals, and whales. More than 30 years later, pockets of crude oil remain in some locations. It's estimated the total economic loss from the oil spill to be as much as $2.8 billion. Cliff and I did not agree on the selection for the first 1989 film we're going to discuss. Cliff wanted to discuss Dead Poet Society, and I, counter to When Harry Met Sally, just had a much more sort of larger social pop culture impact. The both of us are not big rom-com guys, but in the end, the rom-com won out primarily because it holds the distinction of being one of the most beloved rom-coms of all time, and Dead Poets Society is more of a period film. When Harry Met Sally was written by Nora Ephron, directed by Rob Reiner, and starred Billy Crystal as Harry and Meg Ryan as Sally. The film ranks 23 on the American Film Institute's top comedy films in American cinema, the film's story follows the title characters from the time they meet in Chicago as college students and through 12 years of chance encounters in New York City. The film addresses, but does not necessarily resolve, the long-standing question of, can men and women ever just be friends? It's a question Cliff and I will attempt to answer in a little bit, but let's first listen to a short clip from the film's original trailer. Men and women can't be friends because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her. So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive? No, you pretty much want to nail him too. A faceless guy rips off your clothes and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same. Well, sometimes I vary it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. I'm difficult. I'm too structured. I'm completely closed off. But in a good way. Let's first address the concept of the romance comedy genre and why we both don't like it. Rom-coms have been around for as long as there's been entertainment. The formula that made up the genre as we know it can probably be traced back to at least William Shakespeare and his plays Much Ado About Nothing and A Midsummer's Night Dream. Is there, uh, you as a literary guy, are there any other classic rom-com stories that go back before William Shakespeare? I don't fucking know. I hate that term, rom-com. The formula is two people meet, have a conflict of some sort, and then reunite to live happily ever after. When Harry Met Sally introduced a bunch of conventions that borrowed some things from past rom-coms, but also introduced several conventions that have since become rom-com standards. When Harry Met Sally helped kick off the romantic comedy renaissance of the 1990s, and its influence is still felt even today. I'm feeling it right now. Okay, good clip. <laughs> Keep it in your pants. Okay. But what is it about the rom-com, Cliff, and particularly this one, that you don't like, or for that matter, most men? 
can't appreciate. Okay, first of all, I don't like the term rom-com. Yeah. It just makes my, my teeth ache. Who the hell comes up with these damn terms? Well, we can't say romantic comedy. We are that lazy as a society yeah, that we, we love can't to abbreviate. I know. And this is a stupid abbreviation. Rom-com. Secondly, to say I don't like romantic comedies is, I think, a bit off. It's just that I haven't seen that many of them to really have an opinion of them. Of course, I haven't seen that many of them because I prefer watching other genres of movies. <laughs> so I guess that would suggest that I don't find romantic comedies all that appealing. Thirdly, it wasn't that I didn't like When Harry Met Sally. I thought the movie was pretty decent both times I've seen it. Incidentally, my personal pick for this episode could be classified as a romantic comedy, but we'll get to that in a bit. Oh, I can't wait. The central question of the film is whether men and women can be just platonic friends and not let sex get in the way of that relationship. This film basically says no. Both characters will end up with each other at the end of the film, and they seemingly will live happily ever after. But how about you, Cliff? What's your response to this question? And do you think this film addressed this premise of Effectively. I'm friends with a lot of women, Ken. Yeah. And some of my best and closest friends are female. And yeah. I haven't had sex with any of them. Okay. So I am living proof that men and women can have platonic relationships. And since I disagree with the premise of this film, I would have to say that it, it didn't address this question effectively or honestly. Yeah, but I don't think most men have strong platonic Most friendships Most men are with idiots. <laughs> that I'm not necessarily going to argue with. But I have seen just way too many real-life examples of men letting their penis do their thinking and not their mind or heart. One of the things I appreciated about this film was the length of time Harry and Sally experienced as platonic friends. I think it was about roughly 10 years. Both Harry and Sally reach a place in their lives in which their platonic friendship transitions into a long-lasting, sexually exclusive relationship. Sure, Hollywood has plastered on the formulaic happily ever after cliche onto the end of this, and it certainly did feel formulaic by the end, but it also felt right after seeing their relationship evolve over such a long time. However, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how the movie dealt with evolving gender roles by this point in American culture. Well, Sally definitely represents a changing figure in the ongoing history of American feminism. There's a point in the film when Harry tries to distinguish the difference between high and low maintenance women. Sally's response perfectly encapsulated the new American woman of the late 1980s and early 1990s. She says, I just want it the way I want it. Even the film's most famous scene with Sally faking an orgasm in a crowded deli says something about the new American woman. Not only is she brutally honest in revealing how women sometimes fake orgasms, but she's willing to prove her point by publicly making a scene in order to humiliate Harry and other men who think they're sexually in control. Did you know this, Ken, that women sometimes fake orgasms? I've only seen it in the movies, Cliff. <laughs> <laughs> mm -hmm. But that scene, uh, uh, although, listen, super funny because the closing line by that older woman in the diner, and by the way, that woman, mm -hmm. that older woman yeah. was Rob Reiner's mother, the director of the film. That was his mom. That scene just bothered me after watching it this time. It just seems out of character for Sally to do something like that in a public place. She's kind of prissy, and calling attention to herself like that in a public place 
especially faking an orgasm, seemed like it was played out for more comedy's sake and less for character development. The next film we're going to discuss was a life-changing experience for me, and I can't say that about many of the movies I've seen in my life. In 1989, I got married, and my wife and I went to see Do the Right Thing on the big screen. Marriage, of course, changed everything, but it's amazing how much a movie can alter your worldview, and Do the Right Thing did that for me. As you know, Cliff, I was raised in a very racist household for most of my younger years. I lived in a very white, very safe suburban neighborhood and had minimal exposure with black people. I was 29 in 1989, and by that point, I had met and hung out with black people, and my views on race began to dramatically shift. I remember there were a bunch of stories around those years about racially motivated violence. After I saw Do the Right Thing, I better understood the anger and rage in the black community, as well as the larger nation for that matter. In fact, Spike Lee, the writer, producer, and director of Do the Right Thing, was inspired by a series of racially charged incidents enough to create this movie. The story explores a Brooklyn neighborhood simmering racial tension between its black residents and the Italian-American owners of a local pizzeria, culminating in tragedy and violence on a super hot summer day. The film starred Spike Lee, Danny Aiello, Ozzie Davis, Ruby Dee, and Samuel L. Jackson, and is the feature film debut of Martin Lawrence and Rosie Perez. Let's listen to a clip from the film's original trailer. It's gonna be a scorcher today. Hey, Sal, I'm gonna get the brothers on the wall here. You want brothers on the wall? Get your own place, you can do what you want to do. What I tell you about the noise! What I tell you about them pictures! Y'all take a chill! Soon after the film's release, in 1989, controversy followed. Some thought it an accurate reflection of racial and ethnic prejudice in a New York City neighborhood, as well as that of the larger nation. Some resented it for employing white guilt endorsing violence as a liberating symbol rather than a debasing reality. And some argued the film would incite black audiences to riot. Cliff, how did this film reflect the state of race and ethnic tensions in America by 1989. Well, race relations in America had come a long way by 1989, but that doesn't mean that blacks and whites were living in harmony across the land. And this film depicts that reality. And in rewatching this film for this podcast, it was sad to realize that race relations have actually gone downhill since the end of the 80s. We somehow managed to elect a black president in 2008, but the backlash to that event has been frightening to say the least. One of the things I found fascinating was that Do the Right Thing wasn't even nominated for Best Picture at the Academy Awards. The film that did win that year was Driving Miss Daisy, a period piece dramedy about a crotchety old white lady and her black chauffeur over the course of 20 plus years. It was certainly a safer and more conciliatory story of race relations, but many people felt it represented old Hollywood values and it delivered deliberately avoided a film far more progressive and confrontational like Do the Right Thing. And I guess that's understandable, but it also says something about how mainstream America chose to turn its head to ongoing racial tensions and pretend that things were rosy. 
An argument could be made that a film like Do the Right Thing only fueled the rise of white resentment and fear, which would give rise to Trumpism in the 21st century. Thoughts on that, Cliff? I mean, I think Trump and Trumpism in some ways were inevitable. Thinking about the past 20, 30 years and a little bit longer in conservative Republican politics. Mm -hmm. But Donald Trump had his entrance into politics by correct with, with his um questioning of Barack Obama's citizenship place of birth yeah right? it seems like every time we make progress in race relations in this country that progress is countermanded by the reaction some Americans have to such progress yeah one of the more powerful sequences in the film is something that Spike Lee has put into almost all his movies he, he has his characters break the fourth wall to express their racist and prejudiced views of various group it basically implicates all all people and groups who perpetuate racial and ethnic stereotypes and prejudices. Dago Wab, Guinea, garlic bread, pizza sling, and spaghetti bending, fried chicken and biscuit eating monkey. Take your fucking pizza, pizza, and go the fuck back to Africa. You little slanty eyed, mean old speaky American, own every fruit and vegetable stand in New York. Jew, asshole! Yo! Time out! Yo, take a chill! I appreciated that message, and it certainly extended the idea of racism far beyond simply a black and white thing. Cliff, I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on whether Mookie did the right thing when he threw the garbage can through the window of the pizza place towards the end of the film. It pretty much was the final straw or what would become an all-out riot in that community. Who am I to say whether Mookie did the right thing by throwing a garbage can through the window of a pizza place? I mean... I'm a middle-aged white man who has never faced racial prejudice of any kind in almost 50 years of living. Mm -hmm. I can in no way relate to the rage and injustice Mookie must have been feeling when he watched the police kill a black man before his eyes. I'm going to pass on that question. Okay, but let me ask you this. Throughout the film, Spike Lee scatters references to Martin Luther King Jr. and Malcolm X, the two most prominent black figures in the civil rights movement. One represents peaceful protest, the other represents protest through any means necessary. Now, Mookie clearly chose to react to the violent killing of Radio Rahim by instigating even more violence. Do you interpret this as Spike Lee's message, that Malcolm X's message bears more serious weight? No. Okay. I think, because I think what ends up happening with Mookie picking up the garbage can and throwing it through the window is not, I am doing this as a way to incite further violence from the people around me. It is his own personal reaction, right? He is so upset by what he's seeing that the only thing he can think of doing is basically punching something. Yeah. And in this case, it's using a garbage can to punch through the window. Yeah. Did the film hold up for you after decades of probably having not seen it? Yeah. I, it's, it's, it's almost like reading a, a short story about that neighborhood mm -hmm. where it's just a, a vignette about yeah. the, the people and the place, yeah. right? And I, I thought it came across, you know, how many, 30 years later? Yeah. Uh, just as well as it did I agree. then. Let's move over to two television debuts that have long endured as television's most beloved and critically acclaimed shows. Let's start with The Simpsons, which actually existed a couple of years before becoming its own show. The Simpsons was created by Matt Groening for the Fox Network. It started out as a series of short films for the Tracy Allman Show, and after three seasons, it was developed into a half-hour primetime show. It became Fox's first series to land in the top 30 ratings in 
the 1989-1990 season. As of February 2023, the series has 743 episodes, making it the longest-running animated series, the longest-running American sitcom, and the longest-running American-scripted primetime television series. Remarkable. It has spawned numerous comic book series, video games, books, and other related media, as well as a billion-dollar merchandising franchise. As of early 2023, The Simpsons, as a brand, is valued at more than $12.5 billion. Holy That's crap. almost as much as that I'm, that I'm valued at. No, I don't think so, Cliff. Uh, well, almost. <laughs> That's more than the net worth of Kanye West, Oprah Winfrey, and Donald Trump combined. How's that for cultural relevance? Well, I mean, in a capitalist world like our own, where we put money values on everything, The Simpsons clearly, clearly represents one of the most lucrative franchises in pop culture history. The series is a satirical depiction of American life epitomized by The Simpson family, which consists of Homer, Marge, Bart, Lisa, and Maggie. The show is set in the fictional town of Springfield and parodies American culture and society, television, and the human condition. Let's listen to a clip from a promo used for the first season of The Simpsons. Hi gang, this is Bart Simpson. Now that I am a huge star, uh, now that we're all huge stars, The Simpsons are getting their own series premiering Sunday, January 14th on Fox. The critics are hailing the arrival of The Simpsons. They're pretty selective. It's hilarious. Jingle bells, Batman clothes. Don't kill me, Dad. Witty. Ow, quit Irreverent. Ow, quit A funny, funny show. When do we get paid? I hope you feel better, Santa. Oh, I will when Mrs. Claus's sisters get out of town. The Ken, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about how the show has reflected American society over the last several decades since its premiere. Well, I contend The Simpsons is one of the most important television shows in all of television history. It has, for better or worse, represented American culture throughout its 33-year run. Its constant use of cultural references from pretty much day one of the series has held up a mirror of satirical insight into our contemporary world, especially in the American world. Government and large corporations exist either to malfunction or exploit the working class. It's no surprise that in 1992, then-President H.W. Bush proclaimed, quote, we are going to keep on trying to strengthen the American family, to make American families a lot more like the Waltons and a lot less like the Simpsons. Unquote. Cliff, if there's any better endorsement of a TV show than that, I have never heard it. If the federal government tells me it's bad, I'm interested. <laughs> Interestingly, China and Venezuela banned The Simpsons in the mid-2000s, deeming it unsuitable for children. One of the show's greatest attributes is it has no age gap, making the show marketable and popular amongst adults, teenagers, and children alike. Although The Simpsons may not have been the first primetime animation series, The Flintstones was when it premiered in 1960, the show's writing has always skewed more adult, but it also retains a more sophomoric visual comedy style for the kids. The Simpsons 
has also been ironically accurate in predicting certain cultural events and issues. Here are just a few of the show's most famous predictions. In a 2012 episode, Lady Gaga visited Springfield and performed her songs while flying over the audience. In 2017, Lady Gaga did exactly that at the Super Bowl halftime show. Amazing. In a 1998 episode, The Simpsons predicted Fox would be acquired by the Disney Company, something that actually happened 21 years later in 2019. And in a 2000 episode set in an undefined future, Lisa mentioned the U.S. was tasked with fixing the economy after former Donald Trump's presidency. (laughs) Not only was Trump elected in 2016, the scene featured Trump descending an escalator reminiscent of Trump's now infamous escalator descent on the day he announced his presidency in 2015. Holy shit. The Simpsons are essentially... Nostradamus. They they are the pop cultural equivalent of Nostradamus. The Simpsons accomplished something that no other television show did before it. It marked the historical intersection of several mediums, social satire, the political cartoon, the American sitcom, and animated television, all rolled into one clever and hilarious 30-minute show about a family of yellow-skinned misfits and their zany community of miscreants. There was another television debut from 1989 that has also been generally regarded as one of television's best and most influential shows. Seinfeld was created by Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld. It ran for nine seasons and starred Seinfeld as a fictionalized version of himself. It focused on his personal life with three of his friends, George Costanza, supposedly modeled after Larry David and played by Jason Alexander, former girlfriend Elaine Bennis, played by Julia Louise Drivis, and his wacko neighbor from across the hall, Cosmo Kramer, played by Michael Richards. It is set mostly in an apartment building in Manhattan's Upper West Side in New York City. It has been described as, quote, a show about nothing, often focusing on the minutia of daily life. However, that was never the intention of the show's creators. Seinfeld claimed years after the series ended, quote, The show about nothing was just a joke in an episode many years later, and Larry and I to this day are surprised that it caught on as a way that people describe the show, because to us, it's the opposite of that, end quote. Nevertheless, the show is often celebrated as one of the funniest and influential television shows of all time. In 2013, the Writers Guild of America voted the number two best-written TV series of all time, second to The Sopranos. Let's listen to a promo clip that was put together when the show was featured on Netflix. So we go into NBC, we tell them we got an idea for a show about nothing. Exactly. They say, what's your show about? I say nothing. There you go. I think you may have something here. Have you ever seen Elaine dance? Elaine dance? It's more like a full-body dry heave set the music. You're going to be the first pirate. But I don't want to be a pirate. What, what, what are you talking about? You double dip the chip. He lives in a bubble. Boy. No soup for you. So you think you're sponge worthy? Serenity now! Shut up, you old pig. Cliff, I got to be honest with you. I was not a big Seinfeld guy. Tommy. I didn't watch a lot of television in the 1990s as I was working hard uh, raising my kids uh, in that early decade. There was also something about the character George Costanza that just really irritated me. And I know that was the intention of the character, but he really, really irritated me. You know, which is kind of peculiar, seeing as how you have essentially paired yourself up with a real-life 
with George Costanza, <laughs> who goes by the name of Cliff. You know, I'm just as neurotic as he is. No, I would argue Costanza is over the top. You know, you're saying I'm not over the top. N- not as much as George Costanza. There's He's- nothing endearing about him. There is something endearing about you. Okay. You're well read. I find your humor to be much aligned with mine. You're a good teacher that has a, a deep heart for his students. The- you have endearing qualities. You're- you can't avoid that. I-, I would argue that George Costanza also has endearing qualities. Oh, I don't. You, Where just- are they? you just haven't. You haven't watched enough. You haven't looked at him enough. Maybe. Closely enough. Maybe. And what's odd about that, I love Curb Your Enthusiasm, which is a show created by Larry David, who was the co-creator of Seinfeld, and supposedly George Costanza was very much modeled after Larry David. And we'll definitely be talking about Curb Your Enthusiasm for our episode on 2000. But I want to bring up a topic you did on two previous shows when we talked about the 1980 comedy film Caddyshack and the 1978 comedy film Animal House. You referenced Aristotle and his theory about the classic formula of comedy. That is a hero who falls to new lows only to rise up to new heights at the end. And that the characters in Caddyshack and Animal House broke that comic convention since they never evolved. It occurred to me that pretty much all of the characters on Seinfeld also broke that Aristotelian convention and never really evolved over time. Do you have any thoughts on that and your thoughts about how Seinfeld might have reflected the larger 1990s decade? In my opinion, the greatest sitcom of all time. Really? Just as I believe Animal House and Caddyshack are the greatest comedic films of all time. When you fuck with Aristotle, you get great comedy. Wow, okay. Uh, I think Socrates said that. (laughs) If Seinfeld was a show about nothing, then the same could probably be said for the 1990s. For whatever reason, the 90s have become sort of a forgotten decade. You never hear people going on about how great the 90s were, like you do with the 50s and no, the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Culturally, I can't really say that the decade had much to offer. Sure, grunge music came and went, and presidential blowjob jokes became a thing. But that's really about it. Yeah. Do you have any theories about how Seinfeld reflects cultural trends or ideas. Well, I do. I think there was a general cynicism that permeated the Seinfeld characters, which I think mirrored a growing cynicism in American society in the 1990s. To me, the characters were very self-absorbed, caught up with petty crap, and had seeming disregard for the consequences of their decisions and actions. They really weren't all that likable, and although that's something the show became famous for, it's just simply not the type of sitcom that I like. It was also a show that used and overused a laugh track to solicit laughs, and that's something I've always resisted. In fact, I watched a Seinfeld episode on YouTube without a laugh track, and big surprise, Cliff, not funny. In fact, I watched a couple of episodes for this podcast, and I never once laughed out loud. Do you want to step in here and stick up for the comedy of Seinfeld? You're fucking deranged. Do you know that, Ken? What? The fact that you didn't laugh out loud when watching Seinfeld suggests a deep psychological affliction that you should definitely get checked out. I really feel for you, buddy. Well, I appreciate you feeling for me. And that's me me sticking up for the comedy of Seinfeld. Okay, but not necessarily for me. No! (laughs) Jesus Christ, there's something wrong with you. We almost can't be friends after this. Oh, stop. All right, Cliff, the music of 1989 was not so good, as evidenced by the number one song that year, Look Away by Chicago. I 
actually like oh this song. Oh my <laughs> god! This is a side of Cliff Price that astounds me. I, I, it's not a great song, mind you, but it's far better than all of the 21st century shit you keep telling me is so fucking infectious. There is nothing infectious about this song. It's insipid nothingness. I don't want you to see me this way. Sadly, Cliff, the music of 1989 plummeted even deeper, at least in my opinion, with the release and subsequent controversy of this song, Girl, You Know It's True by Millie Vanilli. name, Millie Vanilli, is just so ridiculous. <laughs> Millie Vanilli was a German-French R&B duo from Munich, Germany that had a growing audience by 1989. But as quickly as they rose up the charts, they crashed hard after it was revealed Millie Vanilli never actually sang the group's songs. It has since become a legendary pop culture story. Soon after the release of this song, it was discovered that Morvan and Politis, I guess his name is, the two lead singers of the duo, did not sing any of the vocals on their music releases. They ended up returning their Grammy Award for Best New Artist. In the end, it ended really sadly. On the eve of the promotional tour for their comeback tour, Pilatus, one of the two singers members of the band, and we use singers with <laughs> quotes around his. <laughs> Only 32 years old was found dead of a suspected alcohol and prescription drug overdose in a hotel room in Germany. So this uh -uh. isn't funny stuff. No, it ends very, very tragically and sad. Too bad. But 1989 wasn't all that bad. This song, Fight the Power by Public Enemy, was released in conjunction with the film Do the Right Thing. The story goes that Spike Lee went to Public Enemy and asked for a song that he could use as the musical theme for his film. Chuck D claimed at the time, quote, I wanted to have sort of like the same theme as the original Fight to Power by the Isley Brothers and fill it in with some kind of modernist views of what our surroundings were at that particular time, end quote. In fact, the Isley Brothers were credited as co-writers of Fight the Power since it was based on their 1975 song of the same name. The song incorporates various samples and references to black culture, including civil rights messages, black church services, the music of James Brown, and it calls out Elvis Presley as a racist. I've read a couple of books on Presley, and based on what I've learned, I don't think Elvis was a racist. In fact, Elvis never held back his adoration of gospel, blues, and R&B. But I get what Chuck D was attempting to do, igniting controversy so as to solicit attention to the song's larger message, which is really about fighting the abuse of institutional power. Nevertheless, Fight the Power reached number one on Billboard's Hot Rap Singles and number 20 on the Hot R&B Singles. In 2021, the song was ranked number two in Rolling Stone's 500 Greatest Songs of All Time. Wow, number you two. support that? Number two out of 500 Greatest Songs? One thing the song did for sure was bring hip-hop and rap deeper into the pop culture mainstream as well as bring a revolutionary anger back 
to popular music. This is one of the first songs that convinced me that rap music was something unique, inspired by very different cultural priorities and very different from the traditional musicianship of mainstream pop music. That manufactured sound combined with lyrics of defiance and rebellion perfectly captured the social conflicts that were happening around that time. This next song was another 1989 hit, like Fight the Power, that didn't sound like anything else around that time. The song is Back to Life by the British R&B band Soul to Soul. They were a British musical collective formed in London in 1988. I remember distinctly hearing this song for the first time on the radio back in 1989 and it combines so many of the things I love about music. An addictive percussive beat, a quasi-reggae rhythm mashed against a hip-hop thing, and a soaring female black singer performance done by Karen Wheeler, I think it's her name, by the way. I'm sure this song was not on your frequent playlist back then, Cliff, uh, but I am curious to hear your thoughts. No surprise, I really can't stand it. Oh, that bums me out. When it came on the radio or on MTV back in the day, I'd change the stage. Oh, it has such a groove. Yeah, I I don't want anything to do with that groove. Mm. But hey, the song was a big success. It topped the charts in Europe and peaked at number four in the U.S. The group won a Grammy for Best R&B Performance the following year. Here's a quote from Jazzy B, the group's founder and principal songwriter slash producer. Quote, We often look to America for our influences, but this was a moment that put British music back on the map. End quote. Here's something I learned from my research that I never knew. Soul to Soul was part of a larger musical movement happening in the UK around that time, something called Sound System Collective. I've never heard of this. It has roots in Jamaican popular culture going all the way back to the 1950s, and it evolved further once it crossed the ocean. A Sound System Collective is a group of disc jockeys, engineers, and MCs playing a mashup of ska, rock steady, or reggae music. Soul to Soul's innovative sound and style also influenced the development of trip hop, a genre that emerged in the UK in the mid-1990s, and we actually covered one of those trip hop bands in a previous 1990 show with Massive Attack. This next song, Like a Prayer by Madonna, came from her fourth studio album of the same name. It was her seventh number one single on the Billboard Hot 100, where it stayed for three consecutive weeks and it topped the charts in multiple countries. Like the last Madonna song we discussed on this show, Papa Don't Preach, this song contained provocative lyrics and it had a risque music video that generated a lot of controversy. It was also the first song by a major artist to be used in a TV commercial before being released to stores or radio stations. Pepsi signed Madonna to a $5 million endorsement deal, which included a two-minute commercial that would debut the song. Instead of an eight-year-old girl at a birthday party, which was in the commercial, Madonna witnesses a brutal crime and takes refuge in a church. She shares an interracial kiss and dances in front of burning crosses. Yeah, that's going to catch some people's attention. (laughs) Predictably, religious groups were outraged with the American Family Association and the Vatican condemning it. I'm glad you referenced Papa Don't Preach, Like a Prayer, and that song share a similar vibe. Both songs are devilishly danceable, but also show Madonna's uncanny ability to inspire strong, conflicting emotions during the course of a single song, leaving the listener 
scratching their head for answers, at least it did for me. Madonna was raised as a strict Catholic, and the song's lyrics describe a personal experience of prayer and the desire for deeper connection with God. She sings about how prayer helps her feel closer to God and brings her a sense of peace and comfort. That's all well and good, but in the song's video, the religious symbolism is countered against sexual innuendo, including Madonna getting it on with a religious statue come to life, as well as Madonna strutting her stuff in a tight-fitting, low-cut dress. She's very hot in this video. It all adds up to a confounding pop culture artifact, but I argue it's the song when Madonna went from being the voice of America's teenagers to the worldwide high priestess of pop, which she eventually became. This could be my favorite Madonna song really? of all time. Once it gets pumping and that choir kicks in, I just want to get up and dance. And unlike you, Ken, I actually got Stop the mood. Stop it. To bring no. to this song. Well, one of these days we're going to go we're gonna at have, it together. We're going to have a dance-off. Yeah, we're going to have a dance-off. <laughs> Cliff, I know for a fact that you are a Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers fan. By 1989, the band had piled up a string of rock hits and were among the most popular acts in rock music. They had released seven studio albums by this point and were seemingly on top of the rock world. But Petty felt the itch to express himself that year with his debut solo album, Full Moon Fever. The album showed Petty exploring his musical roots with nods to his influences. The album was produced by Jeff Lynne from Electric Light Orchestra fame, and he shared songwriting credit on many of the album's songs. The album came out right around the same time as the recording of the debut album from the Traveling Wilburys, which of course included Petty, Jeff Lynne, George Harrison, Roy Orbison, and Bob Dylan. You've heard of those guys, right, before? No, not at all. all right. um, but you can really, I kind of always saw Full Moon Fever and the, the Traveling Wilburys first album as one almost an extension of the other. Yep. It, much of this album's songs feature contributions from four of the Heartbreakers and three of the Wilburys, Lynn, Harrison, and Orbison. The album was a commercial and critical success, peaking at number three on the Billboard 2000. Penny would later say Full Moon Fever was the most enjoyable record of his career. My two favorite songs on the album are, of course, Free Fallin', oh, I which love is that the song. biggest song on the album, and then also You're So Bad. Another great song. Oh, you're so bad. Best thing I ever had. I'm curious to hear your thoughts, Cliff, on how Tom Petty, who's now been dead for the better part of the last eight years, I think, will be remembered in the context of rock music history decades from now. I, I mean, he's going to be, he's one of the, um, the the big names in the, in the second wave of, or maybe it's really the third wave of the great rock star, or great rock And musicians. so you're putting like Springsteen, Melon he's, Camp. Yeah, he's, he's in that yeah, wave, yeah. right? And what happened after, I'm, not, I'm thinking, of course, you had the first wave, which would have been, you know, your Elvis and your Jerry Lee Lewis. Yeah. And then you had your second wave, which would have been your The Beatles and your Rolling Stones. And then you kind of had this third wave that came along in the 70s where you had uh, Springsteen comes on the scene, Tom Petty comes on the scene. The Clash comes on the scene, right? Uh, then eventually Mellencamp's going to come on the scene right. in the 80s. Like, the, the, this is another, Billy Joel is another example. Yeah. There's like the third wave of rock. And he's going to, he's right up there. Yeah. Right? He's got some great, great, great songs. Almost every song of his, or album of his, had at least one or two, if not three or four, 
really good songs that made it on the radio. Yeah. He's a staple of classic uh, rock music yeah. uh, radio. Yeah. Um, and he was just, he's just kind of a down to earth guy yeah. that just made, he, he, he he didn't have one the voice to yeah. be a rock star. Right. He didn't kind of look like a rock star with his kind of bent nose, yeah. and he really just—I think he was—he's he's just like an everyman musician. Hey, it's time to reveal our personal favorite release of 1989. I am picking the film Uncle Buck, oh. written and directed by John Hughes. Great film. Yeah. Great film. The film tells the story of a bumbling bachelor played perfectly by John Candy, who babysits his brother's rebellious teenage daughter and her younger brother and sister while the parents are away on vacation or some, I think they went on a funeral. This is another one of those John Hughes movies that just tugs at your heartstrings while injecting hilarious dialogue and physical comedy. I believe this is John Candy's best performance. You are, you are right. Yeah. yeah. And playing Trains and Automobiles was awesome, but Candy had Steve Martin to play off of in that film, and I think that's why that was so funny. But in this film, he carries this film with a performance that just melts your heart and tickles your funny bone. Cliff, how about you? Uncle Buck is an awesome film, and if I had known that it came out in 1989, I would have surely considered it for my personal pick. Oh, I'm glad my... that we can agree yeah, on that. I, one, I, I was amazed. But there were two other great films that we didn't discuss in this show. The first is the drama Dead Poet Society, starring Robin Williams as a literature teacher at a prep school in New England who inspires his students to seize the day and suck out all the marrow of life before they turn to dust. This film will make you want to stand on your desk and call out, Oh, Captain, my Captain, <laughs> just like the students do at the end of the film when Williams' character is sacked for bringing too much love of life into the hearts and minds of his students. In fact, don't you model your own teaching career after pretty much Robin Williams and pretty much <laughs> the other is one of my all-time favorite films perhaps my favorite film of all time I used to always say it was my favorite film of all time I know I know this uh, and it just so happens to be a teenaged romantic comedy of sorts it's say anything starring John Cusack and directed by Cameron Crowe this film will make you want to stand outside and hoist your boombox <laughs> into the air and pledge your undying love to the one you love. Boy, it's, it's one of Cameron Crowe's most beautiful contributions to film yeah. using music. Hey, well, that does it for this show. If anyone's interested to learn more about the stuff featured in the episode, please visit our website, kenandcliff.com. Next week, we cover the year 2004, and we will discuss the film's Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind and the Academy Award Best Picture from that year, Crash. We'll discuss the television debuts Lost and Deadwood. And for music, we'll hear music from Usher, Franz Ferdinand, Green Day, Kelly Clarkson, and Snoop Dogg. Oh, good Snoop Dogg. Please share Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff, with your friends and family, Homer Simpson, Jerry Seinfeld, Madonna... You can always find us on KenandCliff.com and drop us a message about what you like and don't like. Join us next time on Yearview Mirror with Ken and Cliff.